Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. So as you know, we are continuing our uh, spring sermon series through the Gospel of Mark called None Like Him. So we're looking at the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, at the uniqueness of Christ and who he is as Mark gives this documentary or biography, if you will, of the life of Jesus. Uh, and so if you've just joined us over the last uh, couple of weeks, you'll hear me referring uh, during the sermon possibly to a scripture journal. Uh, so we had those for sale here at the church. We sold out. Those are scripture journals through the book of Mark that people are taking notes in and, and using at home during the week. Um, but the good news is they're really cheap on Amazon. So if you just search for the ESV scripture journal on Amazon, if you're new to Kernan or if you haven't been here the first couple of weeks, um, you can find one. You can pick one up real real easily and bring that to church with you as well. So uh, well, let me pray for us as we ask the Lord to bless his word as we look at it today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, we come before you with gratitude. <clears throat> Lord, we want to express how grateful we are that, that you are our God, that you have given your life for us, that you have stood in our place. You have died the death that we should have died. So Jesus, we thank you. And I pray that you would use your word to speak deeply into our hearts. Let us hear it. Let us receive it and accept it and embrace it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So imagine, if you will, that you go to the doctor and you've been having some symptoms. They've been bothering you. And uh, so you go to the doctor and he tells you that you must have surgery. You need to have surgery. In fact, if you do not have this surgery, you will die. Now, he also tells you that it's an easy recovery. There's no harmful side effects. It, it truly is a no-brainer. It, it, it's very simple. It's very easy, but you must have this surgery. Now, how crazy would it be if you responded in the moment in the room and said, no, nah, I'm good. Nah, yeah, you know, I appreciate the offer. I'm, I'm not interested, right? Or, or how crazier would it be if you looked at him and said, you know, really got a lot going on right now. Uh, don't think I have time, you know, to squeeze this in my schedule. You know, I've got shows I need to watch. March Madness is going on. This is just not a good time, okay? My wife is beating me in the bracket. That's another story. Okay, true story. <laughs> but the only, the only appropriate response to the doctor in the moment is, yes, let's do this. Sign me up. Let's get it scheduled. Let's do this. That's the only appropriate response. Well, the crazy thing is, though, in the Gospel of Mark, he is showing us in chapters 3 and 4 that not everybody is responding appropriately to Jesus and his message. Jesus is bringing this diagnostic message to people and he is saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So the call to repent tells us that there's something that we need to turn away from. That's what that word means. So that means that there's something wrong with us, and we know the scriptures tell us that 
God created a good world, but we have sinned and we have rebelled against our creator. And we've turned to other things to worship and to give ourselves to and allegiance to besides him. So the Bible calls that problem sin. That's the problem we have. That's the diagnosis. And ultimately, the greatest consequence of that is separation from God for eternity, not just all the other problems we experience because of the sin in our lives, but ultimately, we do not get to have a relationship with God. So Jesus is preaching that bad news side of the message, but he's also giving the solution. He's also giving the healing, the healing solution to that terrible problem, and it's him. He is the message. He is the solution. He is telling people and preaching this good news, this gospel, that he will stand in humanity's place. He will represent humanity on the cross and bear the sins of the world, and the weight of that will be on himself so that if we turn from our sin and put our hope in him, he takes our sin we get his righteous record and we get to have a relationship with God forever. That's the gospel. That's the message he's preaching. But not everybody is a fan. Not everybody is responding appropriately to this life-changing, life-urgent message. So what I want us to do today is we're going to go fairly quickly, as Mark does himself, through some examples in chapter 3 And I want us to see four examples of people responding to Jesus, and then we're going to do something, or we're going to see something in chapter four very interesting as to how we think about these people responding to the message of the gospel. So four examples, right? Here we go. Four quick examples through chapter three of different people responding to Jesus. Here's the first one. So the first one are the religious leaders. Now, When we say religious leaders, we're talking primarily about a group called the Pharisees who rose to religious power between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, you know, 300, 200, 100 BC, all right? Now, we're also talking here about scribes. You'll see that word in Mark. The scribes were deeply influenced by the Pharisees, so they're in cahoots together. Now, the Pharisees were very influential. They were very influential on the common Jewish society. They believed that their moral superiority, so they thought they were better than everybody else because they had strict adherence to the Old Testament law. Now, when I say strict, I'm talking like really strict, okay? They would even create more laws and rules that were never in the Old Testament just to make sure that as a buffer that they would never get close to breaking any of the actual rules and laws in the Old Testament. So these guys have taken the Old Testament and turned it into this mechanical way of pleasing God by themselves looking so great and impressing other people. And they have created their own rules and have elevated them to the level of Scripture. So they demand and put this burden on the Jewish people of the day to follow the rules they created just as much as they would say you need to follow the Bible or at the time the Torah, the Old Testament. So these Pharisees and scribes, when Jesus comes preaching this message that it's not about you, that it's not about how well you can behave to impress God and earn his favor. When Jesus comes preaching this gospel message that you just heard me summarize, 
The Pharisees, they see that as a threat to their business. It's a threat to their power. It's a threat to their control. And so they try to derail Jesus' ministry. They accuse him of stuff back in chapter 2 that we saw last week. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy. They accuse him of hanging out with the wrong crowd. They accuse him of breaking the law. And then look at this in Mark chapter 3. Mark 3, let's read verses 1 through 6. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They weren't even friends with the Herodians. The Herodians were supporters of King Herod. The Pharisees didn't even like them, but they have one common enemy who is threatening their power, Jesus Christ. So out of fear and out of jealousy, they begin plotting to eliminate this threat, to eliminate Jesus himself. They even try to ruin his reputation by spreading evil falsehood about him. Look down at Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. So they're throwing anything at the wall and hoping something will stick. So that's, that's how the religious leaders respond to Jesus. They see no need for his salvation in their lives. They are fine. They are good. They have their lives rolling just the way they want them. There is no need for Jesus to interfere in what they have already built. That's their response. Second, the second example we see here in chapter 3 are the crowds. The crowds flocking to Jesus. Look at verses 7 through 10. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. That's a lot of people. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Right? So they literally have to get a getaway boat, right? Because these crowds are, are suffocating Jesus. There's so many people flocking to him to be healed of their diseases. Word has spread. As you would imagine. And keep in mind, this is the first century. There is no Twitter, right? There is no Facebook. Nobody's sharing this on social media. No one's advertising this in the newspaper or on the news. Just word of mouth and the evidence of people who could not walk are walking. The blind, people who used to be blind and begging on the side of the street are now can see. 
And their lives have been restored to them. And so people are hearing this. People are seeing this. And they're coming to Jesus. Lots of people from all over the region. But why? Why are they coming to him? What do they really want? Now, obviously, many are coming to be healed, and that's great. But is that all they want? Just that physical restoration? You know, listen, Jesus is being clear, right? Jesus has been very clear with his message and his priorities. He's teaching and preaching the gospel, as we saw last week, right, with the paralytic as they lowered him through the roof, remember that story? Jesus did what first? Before he healed him physically, he forgave his sins. Showing us that Jesus prioritizes the spiritual healing over the physical. Both very important. But ultimately, only one can send you to an eternity without God. And so Jesus addresses that urgent problem first in that man's life. So I just want us to understand, Jesus isn't going around from town to town putting on some show trying to attract a large following. He is preaching a gospel message. He is talking about sin, and he's forgiving sins first. As we see, that's the top priority. It's not wrong that people are coming to him for healing, but do they understand what they really need the most? Will they follow him after they've been healed, I wonder? Will they still think that they need him once Jesus makes all of their problems seemingly go away? These great crowds, they're responding. But do they want temporary relief? Are they just using Jesus to get what they think they need the most? The third example we see in this chapter is Jesus' own family. His own family. Look at this, verses 20 and 21. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat, right? Now that would make me angry. Too many people in the house, we can't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. His own family is accusing him of being crazy, right? They don't understand who he really is. They've lived with him their whole lives, and they do not understand that he is the son of God, that he is on a mission to restore the world to its original good state that God created, to reverse the curse of sin and the brokenness in people's lives, and they're accusing him of being crazy. They're responding. The fourth and final example we see in chapter 3 are the disciples. More specifically, the 12 apostles. So Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, look at this. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. So I want to be clear on terminology. We're all disciples of Jesus, right? If you, have, if you follow Jesus, if he is your Lord and Savior, you're a disciple of Christ. But these are Specific. This is a specific role that God created in this first century called apostles, okay, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave, gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. I wonder how they got that nickname. We're not really told. Sounds interesting. 
Verse 18, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So these men are appointed directly by Jesus for this special calling. But the diversity is pretty remarkable. You've got ordinary fishermen like James and John and Peter and Andrew, right? And then you have a tax collector, Matthew, who is aligned and in cahoots with the Roman Empire. And then you have a zealot, right? You have Simon the Zealot who is adamantly against the Roman Empire. So you can only imagine some of the conversations that Matthew and Simon were having about whether or not they should submit to Rome and what that should be done about that, right? So what in the world could bring this ragtag group of guys together that are so different from these diverse socioeconomic backgrounds? What could bring them together? Only the gospel. Because they see their need for it. They see that they're sick and they know that Jesus is the answer. Now, the disciples, the apostles here, to be clear, they don't know everything yet. These examples, though, alone show us that Jesus is calling people from all walks of life to follow him. Everyone needs the gospel equally, but time will tell, time will tell how these apostles' faith will hold up. But one reason Jesus called these men was to send them out. Did you see that in verse 14? He called them to be with him, to be discipled by him, but also then to send them out, as it tells us in verse 14, to do what? Preach the gospel. To preach the gospel message to the lost and hurting world in such desperate need of it. And so as as one commentary pointed out, Jesus is about to send out the 12 to preach the gospel. So what does this mean? That means that the gospel message is going to be heard by all kinds of different people. As these 12 apostles go out, Jesus is sending them around. You already have people from Jerusalem and Tyre and Sidon, right? You have people from Judea and Idumea. You have people from beyond the Jordan. You have people from north, south, east, and west already coming and hearing this message. And the apostles are going to go out into those places sharing this good news. So the message is going to fall on many ears. Lots of people are going to hear about Jesus Christ and what he came to do. But the golden question is how are they going to respond? Religious leaders, crowds looking for healing, Jesus' own family, those closest to him, supposedly. Those who really want to be with him. All these types of people are going to hear this message. Now, you're going to get lots of different responses. And so one question that we have to ask is, why do people respond to Jesus the way they do? When you're sharing the gospel with someone at work, or maybe you're in your family, Maybe they resist, maybe they're interested, maybe they believe, whatever the case may be. Why do people respond the way they do to the message of Christ? Let's go to chapter 4 and we'll find the answer. So if you, if you turn over to chapter 4, Jesus is going to tell us the answer to this question. But he's going to use what the Bible calls a parable, an illustration. He's going to use an illustration 
to represent four different kinds of soils, which represent ultimately our hearts, and how we receive the gospel and how we respond, how we respond to this message when confronted, just as if you were in a doctor's office and you heard this life-changing news, when you hear the gospel, that's exactly what it is. So, the first thing we see here is the illustration itself in verses 1 through 9. Look at Mark 4, 1 through 9. So I just want to read the whole illustration, and then Jesus is going to give an explanation. But here's the illustration. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So imagine the scene on the Sea of Galilee. All the people are on the shore, Jesus, so they can all see and hear him. He's in a boat just off the shore teaching. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said... He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's the illustration Jesus gives us. Now, what does it mean? Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us. Jesus gives us the explanation in verses 14 through 20, and that's where I want us to spend the rest of our time today. Why do people respond to Jesus the way they do? And what is the significance of this illustration that Jesus is giving in response to all these different reactions that people have given Jesus in chapter 3. Well, the first explanation is this. The hard-hearted see no need for him. The hard and callous heart sees no need for a Savior in their lives. Look what Jesus says about the parable in verses 14 and 15. He says, the sower sows the word. Now, the sower could be Jesus himself. The word is the message, the gospel. That's what that represents. But really, the sower could also be any Christian who is proclaiming the gospel. So the sower is spreading the gospel message to people, verse 15, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown When they hear, when they hear the gospel, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, when you're walking along a path, if you're walking through the woods on a nature trail or perhaps in a field, if you're walking along the path where people have tread, right, it's it's rocky, it's rough. There's no way a seed is going to get into that hard, flat surface. So these people's hearts, Jesus is saying, is just like that. These people's hearts are hardened 
to the truth of the gospel. The gospel does not get through. It doesn't convict them of their sin. So what kind of people then are we really talking about here? Well, it could be immoral people who are just apathetic and don't really care about God at all, right? So on one end of the spectrum, it could be an atheist who would say, I don't even believe in God, right? Okay, well, let's slide a little bit further on the spectrum. Maybe it's someone who says, well, sure. I mean, I believe there's a higher being. I believe there's a God, but, you know, I like my life. And I think I'm a pretty good person. So I really don't have anything. What, what are you telling me? I don't need this in my life. Well, let's, let's slide further to the other end of the spectrum here. So when you get to the other end of the spectrum, you know who you have? Good church-going people who think that they can earn God's love by keeping every little rule in the Bible and, on top of that, all the other little rules they've created in their own head to impress people and to impress God. The Pharisees. The Pharisees. They're as religious as you can get. They're as morally good as you can get, at least on the surface, at least apparently, visibly, and they don't understand their need for a savior. So let's be clear here today before we just throw atheists under the bus that on the other end of the spectrum, and I think who this is really targeted at, are the religious people who say, you know what, I'm so good. Look at me. I've got my life all put together and ultimately I've been fooling all of y'all because I've been coming to church all these years pretending that I love Jesus, but really I just love me. And I'm using Jesus as a way to make me even look better. Do not miss that, that in this parable, the hard-hearted Pharisees are the ones that the gospel message is bouncing off of their hearts. The bottom line is they would say, I don't see a need. I don't see a need for Jesus. I don't see a need for me to repent and turn away from anything because I'm so good. I'm hiding behind religion as a way to promote my own record and pride. Or maybe they would say I'm against religion because I can figure out life myself. But the point is they miss the point of the gospel. So the hard-hearted, no matter what end of the spectrum they're on, see no need for a savior. Look at the second explanation Jesus gives. Verses 16 and 17, we see the superficial only want to use him. So you have hard-hearted, but now you have this superficial heart that really just wants to use Jesus to get something. Look at this, verse 16 and 17. And these are the ones, Jesus says, sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So who, who is this kind of person? See, this person gets excited about Jesus at first. So where have we already seen this today? The crowds, right? The crowds are coming to Jesus. They're excited. He's doing things that are going to meet their tangible needs, and they're super pumped about it. Jesus, for this person, though, is probably meeting some kind of emotional need or tangible, but deeply, probably an emotional need, 
at that particular moment in your life. And so you come to Christ or you come to church and you kind of put on this emotional show that you're really excited about God because you need something from him. And Christianity, you think, can deliver that. It can help you get it. So maybe it's alleviating some guilt you have in your life. And so you think if you start coming to church and come to Jesus, that that guilt will be alleviated somehow. You'll feel better about yourself. You can sleep at night. Maybe, maybe it's a social reputation. So you think that coming to church is going to increase the likelihood that others will think highly of you. Maybe it's just stability. Your life is kind of a mess and so you need some stability in your life and church will give you that. Maybe it's admiration of your mom or your grandparent who has been trying to get you to go to church for years and so now you're here and so you're just thankfully that they'll finally be quiet about it. But when you realize, when you realize that following Jesus is going to cost something, that it's not just going to be so peachy and nice and easy when you're, when you're coming to Jesus and you realize that, oh my goodness, actually following Jesus as what the Bible says means that I'm going to have to start making sacrifices in my life. It means that I'm going to have to give up some comforts. I'm going to have to turn away from some idols and turn away from sin. And when you realize that, you're done. You're done with the faith. You're done with church. You're done with Christianity pretty much in general. Anybody been there? Anybody know somebody there? Why do these people give up? Why do they quit? What Jesus is saying is that it was superficial. The gospel never really actually took root in their hearts. They had the head knowledge. I mean, who in here doesn't have the right Sunday school answers? You know? Like we have the head knowledge, but is it really in our hearts? Well, according to Jesus, the superficial, they just want to use him for something. They're attracted to something. They're attracted to something Jesus is offering or something that comes with associating with Christians, but they are never actually attracted to Jesus himself. They don't want him for him. They want him for what he can give them. So they were either told or believed an improper understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. So as soon as your life got uncomfortable being a Christian, as soon as the problems of life came back, Jesus was of no longer any use to you. The third example and explanation Jesus gives of this parable is that the double-minded, the double-minded have no room for him. So the superficial only want to use Jesus to get something, to ultimately just make them, their lives better in some way, even if it's just emotionally. But the double-minded, it's, it's different. They have no room for Jesus in their lives, ultimately. Maybe at first. Look at this. Look at what he says, verse 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and, and what happens? Choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So this person, Jesus says, you want the best of both worlds. The world 
and the spiritual Christian world. You want the best of both. You want to have your cake and eat it too. So you don't, you don't want to lose Christianity in your life. You need that for whatever reason, perhaps for some of the reasons we just mentioned with the rocky soil, the surface level, superficial stuff. So, so you want Christianity in your life and you want it to be visible, but you also at the same time want your idols. You want the cares of the world, you want the desire for other things, you want the deceitfulness of riches, you want Jesus and you want the world, you want both things together and you think you're just going to walk into heaven with all your idols in your arms with no repentance letting that sin and those idols control you so you don't want to give up those things so that God can ultimately have full control so you're double minded playing games with God essentially is what's going on by trying to be considered a Christian while also chasing hard after the things in the world that in and of themselves are not evil or wicked, but you're making them so because you're elevating them to the same level as Christ. What am I talking about? Wealth. If you're devoting your whole life to just becoming more and more and more wealthy, no matter what the starting point is, whether you're already poor or already rich, if it's an idol in your heart and you think, my life will be fine as long as I have more money, then when you get that more money, the next thing you say is, my life will be better if I just have a little more money. And so it's a never-ending game. It's a never-ending pursuit. You never have enough. Maybe it's security. Maybe it's the cares in this world and the tangible idols that we fixate ourselves on and think, whether it's a social symbol or whatever it may be, that we need these things in our lives to make us whole and complete to give us peace and happiness. And you know what? I'm going to gather all those things in this arm and then I'm going to gather Jesus and the church in this arm and I'm just going to live for both. I'm going to live for both worlds, man. And I'm not going to look any different than the world. But you see, there is not enough room. That's the problem. Jesus says there's not enough room for our idols and Jesus to coexist peacefully in our hearts. One will overcome the other. They cannot live side by side. Your heart's not big enough for that. Matthew 6, 24, listen to this. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is Jesus speaking. He is saying that it's impossible to try to live and, and give and, and pledge your allegiance to two different life goals. You just can't do both. So wealth as an idol is deceitful. It lies to us. It promises comfort and security and admiration, but it doesn't deliver. It never delivers in the end just gives us more anxiety, more fear of what we might lose. So over time, our lives, you know what? Yeah, they're fruitful. Our lives are so fruitful in the world's eyes. We've done so well. But where's the kingdom fruit? Jesus says, you're not 
producing any fruit because you have no time, you have no space for God's fruit to grow. I think there's a great danger here with these two types of soils, the surface level and the one that falls among the thorns. It's those two that I'm really worried about. I think there's a great danger here and lesson for the American church. Man, are we too much like the world? <laughs> are we too much like the world? I mean, we're supposed to look you know, like the world to a degree because we want to reach the world, absolutely. But where are our hearts? Where's our allegiance, really? Because if we are just like the world in every regard, including the allegiance of our hearts, so what witness is that? From the perspective of your family and friends who don't know Jesus, I mean, when they look at your life, do they see anything different? Is your life any different than your lost friends that don't know Jesus? Is it any different? Is it any different than theirs in terms of your allegiances and your commitments with your time? How you devote your time? How do you devote your finances with the kingdom of God? And what a terrible witness for the world, for people in the world who don't know Jesus, to look at our lives and say, well, the only difference between me and him is that he just goes to church on Sundays. That's it. So why would I accept Jesus when I can apparently live just like I do and everything be just like him? Nothing changed. I want to be clear. I mean, look, we're not saying you need to go be a monk and live in a monastery, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. But we're just asking, is there evidence? Is there evidence in your lifestyle that you are fully committed to Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God first? And not the cares of this world, as Jesus calls them. I think a sobering example here is Judas Iscariot. Now, I read his name earlier. Mark put his name last in the line of the disciples because he wanted to mention and make sure we all understand that that's the one that fell away. He's the one that betrayed Jesus and had him ultimately handed over to be crucified. Judas Iscariot had everybody fooled. But in the end, his idol came to the surface of his heart and it showed and it controlled him. In the end, money and security and safety won. Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus says these sobering words, what, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Here's the thing about the superficial and the double-minded responses to Jesus. If you don't fully accept Jesus as he actually is, but at the same time you want to be considered a Christian for whatever reason, that's what you want people to think of you, if you don't fully accept Jesus for who he actually is, then essentially you are creating your own version of God. We see that's what's happening here, right? With the superficial 
and the double-minded. It's just, I'm going to create my own version of God so that I can live my life how I want to with God too. But that's not the real God, right? It, it's, like, it's like my son, Barrett. He's four years old and you know he's got the funniest imagination, that kid. I love it. It's, it's incredible what he pretends and, and the things that he thinks of and talks about. You know, last year, uh, there was a season where I'm pretty sure he was convinced he was a pirate, you know, and that's really funny and cute now, but it's not going to be funny and cute 20 years from now if he doesn't grow out of that, right? You know what I mean? So thank God for his vivid imagination, but at some point, he's going to have to see reality. Uh, Barry, I love you, buddy. You're not a real pirate, okay? You've got to stop hitting your siblings with that plastic sword, okay? There's nothing wrong with a vivid imagination, but if we're living in this fantasy world that we're making in our own minds with this own God, this version of God that we can hold neatly in our hands and really kind of make him submit to our lifestyle, we're going to be in for a rude awakening. And so in this parable of the soils, those who receive the word at first but then fall away, maybe they have signed up to follow a God of their own making, a God of their own imagination, one who could not cause any disruption in their lives, one who would give them the world just as they want it to be. But when they learn this is not who God is, that's why they give up on Christianity. That's why they give up on the church. It's sobering to think about. So what must we do? How should? Where's the good response? What is the proper, the only appropriate response to Jesus Christ and his gospel message? It's this, number four. And lastly, we'll close with this. It's the humble and repentant who are desperate for him. That's the only appropriate response. It's the humbled and repentant who realize they need a Savior. Look at verse 20. Mark 4, verse 20, Jesus says this about the good soil that hears the gospel and embraces it and turns to it. But those that were sown, sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. The ESV Study Bible, I love, love this, what it says about this verse. It says, the good soil represents a consistently attentive and accepting heart. Now, I want to be very clear today, and I'm about to close. I want to be very clear, all right? Listen, it's, it doesn't say perfect. It doesn't say perfection. It doesn't say that you're always going to get it right, that you're always going to have you know, so much love for the Lord and you're never going to have a doubt in your mind about God and his goodness and yourself and your relationship with him. It doesn't say that. It says that over time, you are consistently attentive to the word of God. You're paying attention to the Lord. And over time, you're consistently accepting the word of God into your life, into your heart. And over time, God is producing fruit. There is evidence that you are not devoted and, uh, and pledged yourself in allegiance to the cares of this world. 
but that you have put the kingdom of God first in your life and people see it, God sees it, and you're doing that because you know that you need him. It's exactly because you know how bad you are that you fall on your knees to Jesus every day. That's the point. It's humility. It's repentance. It's turning away from the cares of the world and turning to Christ to be the only sufficient answer and provision for the joy and the eternity that you need. It's because you know you're a bad person. It's because you know you can't do it that you do turn to Christ consistently, attentively to his word, accepting it day by day. Do you see the difference? It's seeking Jesus for himself. And I don't know where you stand today. I don't know what end of the spectrum you're on. But at the end of the day, the question for you to answer right now is this. Do I love Jesus for Jesus? Or am I playing some kind of weird spiritual religious game where I have created this version of God and I'm just trying to get something out of that so that I can carry on with my normal life and nothing changes. I hope and I pray that's not the case for you. But if it is the case for you, it is not too late to turn around. It is not too late for you to come to Christ and humbly admit that you've been playing games all along and that you love him and that you want more of him. Because he loves you. You can do that because he loved you first. Because he went through the pain and the torture and the humility and the shame. All the things it took for him to get to the point of the cross and then on the cross. What it took for him to stand naked and ashamed in your place. To die and take the penalty of sin that you should have bore yourself. But he took it on himself. It's those who realize they're sick. It's those who know they need spiritual heart surgery that give the only appropriate response. Yes, let's do this now. A couple of our church members will be down front after Kyle plays us out with a closing song. I'll be out in the cafe if you need somebody to talk to about this, we're ready. We want to talk with you and we want to just walk you through some steps of what it means to follow Jesus and, and look at your life. We want to help you do that. So don't leave here today unsure. Don't leave here today not knowing 
where you stand. You can know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you're not playing games. It's not an emotional response. It's a deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. We'd be glad to talk with you today. Don't be afraid to to come up to us. But maybe you're here today and you are a Christian and the truth is, maybe you're a little too close. Maybe you're a little too close with that third example of soil, the double-minded. You're barely squeezing Jesus in to your life because it's so crowded with the cares of this world. I ask you to consider your time. I ask you to consider your money. I ask you to consider your heart's devotion. Where is it really? We all have room that we need to make. We all have clutter in our hearts, but now's the time to confess those to Christ and ask him to make room for him truly in our lives. Let's let's do that in prayer now. Lord Jesus, we confess our tendency to attach our hearts to the things of this world. It's so dangerous. It's a dangerous game we play, Lord, to think that there's something in this material world that is going to satisfy us. We forget how short life is. We forget that eternity is forever. And that the things we do in this world for us and for ourselves will not last. But the things that we do for you and your kingdom will last forever. Lord, how backwards, how backwards we think and we get it sometimes. So Jesus, have mercy on us. We are sinners desperately in need of grace. Desperately in need of you, Lord Jesus, to be our Savior. We need you. Lord, may every person in this room confess that now to you in this moment. And let us take your word seriously. Let us be consistently attentive, consistently accepting and repentant and humble. Lord, may we not gain the whole world and lose our soul. Would you help us today, Holy Spirit, transform our thinking, transform our behavior, transform our hearts. It's in your name we pray.